But we are in our last week of our series in, in Habakkuk, and if you're new to the series, I just want to recap for us where we are at. So there was a man named Habakkuk who was a prophet of God who lived in Judah. At this time, Israel had divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom were 10 of the 12 tribes, and they were called Israel. And then the southern kingdom, two tribes, they were called Judah. And in about 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, they were defeated by Assyria and dragged off into exile, really never to return. And at this, this story, this book that we've been studying, takes place between that event and then in 586 B.C., about 150 years later, Judah is also dragged off into exile by Babylon. And they will return under the leadership of men like Nehemiah and Ezra, other parts of the Old Testament. So that's kind of where we're at. This is about 600 years before Jesus was born. And Habakkuk, at the very beginning of this three-chapter book, he says to God, God, are you paying attention? You ever feel that way? God, are you, are you paying attention? Do you see what's happening in our world? Do you see what's happening in our country? Do you see what's happening in my life? Are you paying attention? Don't you care? There's evil people doing evil things in Judah. And God replies and says, oh, I'm paying attention. I see everything. And I actually have a plan. And my plan is I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, those heathens, and they're going to come and they're going to punish you for your wickedness. And Habakkuk's response is one of objection and horror. Uh, Surely not, God. (laughs) That's a bad plan. You're having a bad day, God, but that is a bad plan. Surely you will not use the very wicked to punish the occasionally wicked. And God replies to Habakkuk's honest objection and says, Habakkuk, you need to learn to trust me. Trust that I'm good. Trust that I'm just. And trust that every promise I give will come to pass. And then there's a change in the prophet's heart. And we get to chapter 3, which is where we were last week, and it's a, it's a moment of transformation where Habakkuk all of a sudden grabs hold of some truth, and he prays out to God. Chapter 3 is his prayer. And last week we ended in verse 16, and verse 16 ends this way. Habakkuk says, I will wait quietly for the coming day when the people, or for when you will strike, when disaster will strike the people who invade us. I want you to notice something here in this just short uh, sentence. Habakkuk is now recognizing that we will be invaded. So he's accepting God's sovereign plans for Judah, even though he doesn't like them. But he's also holding on to this idea that God will not let the evil go forever. So not only will we be invaded, but someday disaster will strike the people who invade us. So Habakkuk is holding on to these two truths at the same time. But the phrase that I find most interesting in this verse is the phrase, wait quietly. What does it look like to wait quietly for something? Whether you're in traffic or driving behind somebody really slow or you get into the line at Wegmans behind somebody who doesn't understand the number 15, right? Uh, What does it look like just to wait quietly? Maybe you're waiting for a phone call, waiting for a doctor's report, waiting for many things in life. We're always waiting for something. And even if we're not loud, because some people are just not loud, even if we're not big complainers, because some people just are not complainers, what does it look like for our hearts to be quiet and our minds to be quiet and our souls to wait quietly? See, when Habakkuk says he's waiting quietly, there's two things this doesn't mean. It can't mean. Number one, it doesn't mean he's not going to still bring his concerns and cares to God. He will continue to do that because that's the pattern that he exercises in this book. And he's never rebuked for doing so. So he's not going to be quiet towards God. But we also know he's not going to be quiet towards other Israelites because he's a prophet. 
His job is to speak for God to the people. So to wait quietly doesn't mean that we stop coming to God with our concerns like we're bothering him and he's sick of hearing from us. And it also doesn't mean that we stop speaking up for what is right and what is true. What it does mean is that in the midst of all of the uncertainty of life, we're going to be invaded and God's going to bring justice to those who invade us. In the in-between, our souls can wait with quietness. Now, the last three verses of Habakkuk 3 are three of my favorite verses in all of the Old Testament, which is why I wanted to save it for its separate week. These are verses that have meant a lot to me in the midst of darkness and struggle and sorrow and grief, and I hope that they will help you this morning, wherever you find yourself. And it reads this way, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. The prophet says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms, even though there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails... And the fields lie empty and barren. He's painting the picture of something very terrible, a famine. Even though the flocks die in the field and the cattle barns are empty. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread or walk upon the heights. And then the book of Habakkuk ends. And what we're left with is a prophet who has been transformed by a real encounter with a real God. And I would just say up front that that is all of our greatest needs. Whatever needs you think you've brought into here this morning, your greatest need and my greatest need is to have a real encounter with a real God. And not just once in our life and not just a case, but regularly encountering a real God that can change us and give us what we need. And what we're going to see here in this short passage is that by the end of this story, Habakkuk has within himself three inner resources that he didn't have when the book began. Or he has it now in abundance. Maybe he had it, but he had it in lack at the beginning. And the first thing, I'm, the first thing is I'm calling it unexplainable joy. Unexplainable joy. Now, of course, in life, there is explainable joy, Right? There's times where it's obvious that we're happy, and it's obvious that we should be happy. Maybe it's a holiday. Today, my, my 13, our 13-year-old daughter is a teenager. She's a, her, Caroline's birthday is today, and she's 13. We have two teenagers in the house now. Pray for us. Um, but we're celebrating because it's, a re, it's, a, it's an it's explainable reason to be happy and to have joy. Last Sunday was Maddie's birthday, and she turned 10, so it's been a week of birthdays and birthday presents and opening presents, and that's an explainable reason for joy. Sometimes joy is because you're with certain people who always give you joy. You know, uh, you look through your pictures on your phone, when you're smiling the biggest is probably when you're with the people that you love the most, or doing things that you love the most, or in my case, a plate of food in front of you that you're super excited to dive into. There are a lot of reasons for explainable joy, but what Habakkuk is talking about here is not explainable joy because he frames it with words like this. There's no figs on the tree. There's no grapes on the vines. There's no olives on the trees. There's no produce in the fields. There's no flocks in the fields, and there's no cattle in the barn. This is like, I feel like he's like, sounds like a, he's like an Old Testament version of a teenager standing in front of the refrigerator at home going, Mom! There's nothing to eat. <laughs> That's what he's doing here. He's saying there's nothing to eat. There's, there, there's, no, there's nothing, there's no provision. And of course, at this time in history, they can't just run off the Wegmans and go grab a sub and, and deal with his hunger that way. If there's no produce, if there's no flocks, if there's no cattle, there's no hope. 
There's no future. There's no life. And in the midst of that moment, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. A few things I want us to notice. Explainable joy, and of course, explainable joy is wonderful. I'm grateful for it. But explainable joy is rooted in circumstances that happen usually during some of the best moments of our lives. But unexplainable joy is rooted in Christ, not circumstances. And we find it during some of the worst moments of our lives. Unexplainable joy. It's a joy that's not rooted in circumstances or rooted in things going my way or me getting my way. It's not rooted in having the easy life, the good life. It's not rooted in anything that this world has to offer. Habakkuk is talking about a joy that is in the Lord and in the God of my salvation. And it's really important for us to notice that Habakkuk does not rejoice in his salvation, although we should, but he says, I rejoice in the God of my salvation. It's a very significant distinction, and here's the distinction. In one case, he would be finding his deepest joy in a gift, but in the other case, he's finding his deepest joy in the giver of the gift. So he's saying, although I'm grateful for my salvation, my deepest joy doesn't come just from my salvation. It comes from the God of my salvation. That God would not just give us something, but that he would draw near to us, that he would walk with us, that he would come and be as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just give us joy. He is our joy. And I recognize that sometimes joy doesn't look like big smiles and bubbly personalities and skipping and prancing and dancing through fields and jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop. Sometimes, depending on what's happening in your life, joy is just getting up the next day, getting out of bed, doing what you need to do. Sometimes joy is just being kind to somebody who isn't kind to you. Sometimes joy is just going to a job where you feel underappreciated. Sometimes joy is just holding on to hope. Joy is not this uniquely singular expression that we think of, big smile, big personality, running around, ignoring the things happening in the world. Joy is the strength that we have to continue to endure. Jesus is our joy. Now, how does he give us this joy? Where does this joy come from? I actually want to bring us to a story about 600 years later in a town called Cana. And it's in John chapter 2. It's a very interesting story. It's actually Jesus' first public miracle. Um, if you're familiar with the Gospels, this is when Jesus is at a wedding feast with his mom and his disciples, and they run out of wine. And at this time and in this culture, wedding feasts were multiple-day things, and the wine was necessary because it basically just was what they would drink. They, they, didn't, they couldn't go turn their faucet on. They didn't, couldn't trust necessarily the quality of their water if they weren't close enough to a deep well. And so they would treat the water in such a way that it would be able to be. So basically what I'm saying is if there's no wine, there's no party. It has to all end. Everybody has to go home. And Jesus is in Cana, and he's at this wedding, and it's his first public miracle. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way. I think it's a weird choice. I do. I think it's a weird choice that this would be Jesus' first miracle to turn water into wine. And yet, when you study what John says about it in John chapter 2, John doesn't actually call it a miracle, or he doesn't call it just a miracle. It's very interesting. In John chapter 2, verse 11, when John is describing what happened, he said this was the first, not of Jesus' miracles, but it was the first of his signs, his signs. And it says that in doing so, he revealed his glory. He manifested his glory. So here's what I want to say. This is much more than a parlor trick or something nice or even an act of sympathy for a poor newlywed couple that were about to experience a major social faux pas. 
There's something happening in John 2 that we can't miss. And Tim Keller, when he talks about this story, he says it this way. He says, Jesus' first miracle was not just a miracle. It was a miraculous sign. And what do signs do? Signs point us to something greater, right? Signs always point us to something else. So what is being pointed to here? And what Keller says is that this story is actually an acted-out picture of who Jesus is and everything that Christianity has to offer. That's a lot for this little story. So where do we get that from? Well, quickly, they run out of wine. They come to Jesus' mom. Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. Somehow Jesus' mom thinks Jesus can do something about this. And Jesus' reply to Mary is really interesting and unusual. What he says to her is, my hour has not yet come. Now, um, my daughters have a lot of creative excuses for not doing their chores or doing things around the house, but never yet has one of them said to me, Dad, my hour has not yet come. Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? And what you have to understand is that in the Gospel of John, every single time the word, the phrase, the hour is used, without fail, every single time that phrase, the hour, references Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion. So here's what we have to consider. Jesus somehow, in that moment, is thinking about the cross. And what about that moment and that opportunity makes Jesus think about the cross? And Keller suggests something really interesting. He says, you know, most people, when they're young and when they're single and when they attend weddings, at some point in the wedding, they actually begin to think about their future wedding. They might see something that's happening in a ceremony, and they might go, oh, I, I, that's special. I want to do that when I get married. Or maybe the colors of the wedding they love. And they're like, i got to remember, I love these colors of the flower or the dress. Or there's things they see and they're like, I will never do that at my wedding, right? But whatever it is, single people often, young people sitting at weddings think about their future weddings. And Keller suggests that Jesus, in a way, is actually doing the same. He's at this wedding, and he's thinking about his future wedding. Now, we know Jesus was not married here on earth. What is he talking about? Well, the scripture says that Jesus is the bridegroom and that the church is his bride. And that there is um, a future wedding day coming at the end of time, a consummation of all consummations. It's the ultimate union of Jesus' people and Jesus. It's the ultimate embrace. It's the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. So what Keller is suggesting is that Jesus is standing at this moment thinking about his future wedding day, but also thinking about what it will cost him or require of him to bring the bride to himself. See, in this story... He provides wine, natural wine, so that the joy of the party can continue. Yet Jesus knew that there was a day coming in the next two to three years where he would provide his blood to bring joy for all time, for all people. And Jesus knew what it would cost him to bring us joy. Now, here's the line that Keller gives that helps me so much. He says that when we look at John chapter 2, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus sitting in the midst of joy, He's in a wedding celebration environment. Jesus is sitting in the midst of joy, sipping of the coming sorrow, thinking of the sorrow to come. Why? So that you and I in life can sit in the midst of sorrow and sip of the coming joy. That no matter what we're going through because of what Jesus did, there's a future joy. There's a greater hope. Hymns, there's hymns that say things like this. When we all see Jesus, that day's coming. There will be a day when all who belong to Jesus will be in his presence and we will see him face to face. And the hymn says, when we all see Jesus, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. 
And I'm telling you, there have been moments in my life of darkness and grief and loss and sorrow where I had to remind myself, someday I'm going to stand in the presence of Jesus with those that I've loved and lost. And together, shoulder to shoulder, we're going to sing and shout his victory forever. What feels like defeat now will someday be declared and sung and shouted in heaven forever as victory. And so unexplainable joy comes from the ability to see beyond our circumstances, not to ignore our circumstances, but to see beyond them to the greater joy that Jesus has secured for us. Unexplainable joy. The second thing that we see in this passage is inexhaustible strength. And I know this is like, this is an oxymoron, right? I mean, inexhaustible strength doesn't exist. Um, all of us are tired all of the time, it feels like. Everyone's like, uh, always want it. You know, I, I, I'm always up for a nap. That's just me. Like, I'm like, I'm a, I'll take a nap if I can, anytime, anywhere. We're always getting tired, right? And there's things that wear us down. And as we get older, we get more tired in different ways. Uh, and all the things that wear us down, like pressure and work and responsibility and family and relationships and life, and we all have some amount of strength. Some of us maybe are a little stronger than others, but none of us have inexhaustible strength. Everybody has a limit. So where do we go for strength when we lose our strength? Some people look inside themselves. They kind of double down and self-made person. Other people look to other people to give them strength and to walk with them and to help them. And then other people look to the things of this world. But according to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, Christians go to the sovereign Lord. The sovereign Lord. And that name for God is so important because the sovereign Lord means that Jesus rules and reigns over every area of my life. That's what it means for him to be Lord. Lord, he reigns and rules over me. But sovereign means he reigns and rules over every circumstance, not just of my life, but of all time, in all places. He's the sovereign Lord. And listen, if you try to find strength in your ability to reign and rule over your own life, if you try to find your strength and your ability to control the outcome of situations, how many of you have learned you have very little control over almost everything in your life? And if your strength comes from your ability to control things, you will always be exhausted. And yet resting in and trusting in a God who is sovereign and Lord means that we have access to inexhaustible strength in him because we can leave it with him and cast our cares upon him. Elizabeth Elliot uh, is a woman who is an author, speaker, missionary, and her first husband, Jim Elliott, it's a famous story, it's been written about and I think put into a film, he was a missionary to the Aka people in, um, in eastern Ecuador, jungles of Ecuador, and he had it on his heart, him and some other young men, to bring the gospel to these tribal people who had never heard of Jesus before. And they began to make some progress with them, and then something went wrong, and, G and, and Jim Elliott was killed by these uh, tribal people in 1956, trying to preach and teach the gospel to them. What's amazing is that his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, she continued to have a heart for these people. And later, she spent two years of her life as a missionary, where she ministered to the very tribal members who killed her husband. An amazing story of finding strength in something besides the things of this world. But this is what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, there's no perfect life, no perfect job, no perfect marriage, no one say amen, and no perfect set of people who will always do what we expect them to do. But what we do have is a perfect God who is able to lead us through this imperfect life with unfailing strength, incomparable wisdom, and infinite love. And you know what? If we can leave that quote up for a second, so much of our exhaustion and so much of our lack of strength comes from us just not simply just not believing any part of this paragraph. 
We think, oh, there is a perfect life, and I'm going to get it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to chase it down. I'm going to work hard, and it's mine to have. Or there is a perfect job, and so I'm going to keep looking for the perfect job. And there is a perfect marriage, and as soon as my marriage is disappointing to me, then I begin to look somewhere else. Or there is a perfect set of people that will do everything that I want them to do. We forget and we believe that lie, but then also we forget that there is a perfect God who leads us through an imperfect life. And he has unfailing strength and hope and joy and wisdom and love for us. So how do we find strength in the strength of God? When we have no strength... What do we do? I came across a really great teaching from John Piper who adapted it from a guy named Augustine who was an early church father. So Augustine to John Piper, and then I kind of moved, I changed some of the language around. So the idea is not new to me, but the, some of the language is new. And it's, it's five things that we can do when we lack strength. When you have no strength for tomorrow, when you have no strength to make another decision, when you have no strength to forgive a person, when you have no strength to deal with a temptation, when you have no strength to move on. And these five things I hope will help you. I've been kind of processing them all week, and they all start with the letter A, so I'm going to give them to you. You might want to write these down or take a picture of the screen once they're all up there. This might help you. But the first thing we do is we admit our need. So the biggest obstacle to us getting God's strength is often our own strength, Right? Paul says in Corinthians that the strength of God is made perfect, not in our strength, but in our weakness. And sometimes my biggest obstacle to receiving the strength that God wants to offer me is that I'm still holding on to my own strength, the facade that I have it in me, that I'm enough. So the first thing we do if we're going to receive God's strength is we have to admit our need that we can do nothing apart from God. The second thing we do is we ask for help. We come to God and we say, God, I need your help specifically for this problem, this conversation, this discussion, this decision, this person, whatever it is, I need your help. Then, I want us to see the next two at the same time, we access a promise and we act in faith. And what John Piper says is that one of the mistakes Christians make is they go from step two to step four and they skip step three. So they say to God, I need your help, and then they try to go act out in faith. And Piper says, between three or two and four, you need to access a promise of God, a specific promise in God's word. You need to find a promise that you can stand in, that you can teach yourself, that you can preach to yourself, that you can memorize. So if you're dealing with issues of abandonment, maybe it's a promise like when Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. If you feel like you got a friendship challenge in your life, maybe it's the promise that Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If there's a temptation that you keep falling into, maybe it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the promise that there is no temptation given you except that it's common to man, and God provides a way out of every single temptation. Whatever it is, we need to access a promise before we act in faith, because otherwise, acting in faith might just be us in our own strength trying to do it with God's help. But we're not doing it with God's help, we're doing it standing in God's truth and knowing who we are in God. So we admit our need, we ask for help, we access a promise, we preach that promise to our own hearts, and then, standing in that promise, we act in faith. And then lastly, we acknowledge God, which simply means we come back to God and we thank him for the help and the grace that is available. And this is how we meet God's strength in our place of weakness. We admit our need, I don't have it in me. We ask for help, God, would you help me be very specific? Then we access a promise from scripture where God has already said that he would be with us or help us do that, then we act out in faith. It does take action at some point. We can't just wait for feelings. And then we acknowledge God. Jim Elliott, that missionary who was killed in Ecuador, his very famous quote, and you've probably heard it before, Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so much of the Christian life is identifying what we can never keep and what we can never lose. And what we can't hold on to is our, our mirage of personal strength. What we can't hold on is to the lie that we can do it on our own. And what we can never lose is the strength that God wants to give us. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what's amazing about Jim Elliott's story is that there's still gospel churches and work in that place. Tertullian said that the, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is so true in this story where Jim Elliott was killed and people would have said, what a waste of a life. And yet countless people's lives have been changed by the gospel because he believed that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is inexhaustible strength. And then lastly this morning, I'm going to ask Antonia and uh, Amy to join me. The gift of steadiness. I'm going to call this the gift of steadiness. You know, I've been serving in ministry in some capacity for almost 25 years now. And I've been around a lot of leaders. I've been around a lot of pastors. been around a lot of church people. Many of you have as well. And one of the things that I've, one of the characteristics that I've learned to love and appreciate and look for the most in leaders and Christians is just steadiness. It's just steadiness. I know it's not exciting. <laughs> it's not sensational. But in a world that is caught up with gift and talent and personality and charisma, give me steady people. Give me a steady heart. It's a marathon following Jesus. It's not a sprint. We need steadiness, and we can't give ourselves steadiness. We try to give ourselves steadiness with all that self-talk and self-help, and we try to give ourselves steadiness with self-development and self-improvement, and that stuff's all fine. There's, there's, there's need for that. We try to give ourselves steadiness sometimes just by numbing ourselves with, with uh, escape and distraction and pleasure and the things of this, but we can't give ourselves steadiness. We need steadiness. We can't give it to ourselves, so what do we do? Well, back it gets it. Look at verse 19. He says, he, speaking of God, makes me... As sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. He makes me steady or sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Now, I, I learned some things about these deer this week. Deer in Israel at this time were about the size of mountain goats. They looked more like, they might have been mountain goats. And actually, I learned, I learned a lot more about mountain goats this week than I ever cared to know. But one of the things that I learned is that mountain goats are not from the goat family. Mountain goats are from the antelope family. They actually are very much a deer. And mountain goats are incredible creatures. They can pull themselves up an incline with just one of their hoofs. They don't even need all four. Just one of them, they can pull themselves up. And they can climb a slope that is greater than a 60-degree angle. And they owe their climbing abilities to their crazy feet. They have these crazy feet that are bony on the outside, soft on the inside, so they can wiggle their front toes together and apart to grip surfaces better. And then the convex shape of their hooves act like a slip-proof sole. And the reason why this is so important, and the reason why mountain goats uh, need to be able to get to the top of mountains is because it's pretty much the only defense they have against predators. And so they're always in danger unless they can get up high and stay up high and be steady up high. And that's the way God created them and made them to be. And Habakkuk saw them in the mountains of Judah and he saw how steady they were on the, on the cliffs and on the stones and how they walked with confidence in dangerous places. And he said, that's what you do for me, God. You make me steady. You make my steps sure. 
And I know that the danger of being up in those heights is falling, but what if the greater danger, what if a greater danger than falling while you're up there is thinking that you got yourself there or thinking that you keep yourself there? And yet Habakkuk knew, God, you make me steady. You give me sureness of footing. And listen, friends, these are unsteady times. There is plenty of unsteadiness in our lives and in our world, in our country, a lot of it. And yet one of the distinguished, what if one of the distinguishing marks of Christians in this time and in this place, in this culture and in this country is that there's a steadiness to our lives. When everybody else loses their heads, we don't. Why? Because he makes us steady. Steadiness looks like being both hopeful and humble at the same time, confident and hopeful, but also humble and broken because it's Jesus who makes us steady. It's Jesus who gives us joy. It's Jesus who gives us strength. It's Jesus who gives us steadiness. Would you close your eyes with me? I just want to read this verse to us one more time. And as I read this, fill in the, you know, in your mind as I'm saying things like, even though the fig tree never blossoms, that's, that's not our world, of course, but maybe your world is, even though I don't get that job, even though the report from the doctor is not great, even though I have to continue to struggle in this relationship, even though I don't have the perfect life, perfect job, perfect husband, perfect wife, even though, even though, Habakkuk says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord, he is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Jesus, this morning we thank you that this is your work on our behalf. You give us joy. You are our joy. You give us strength. You are our strength. You give us steadiness. You make us steady. You make us strong. You give us courage. You make us brave. This morning, we recognize our need for it. If you're here this morning, you're just like, I just need something that you talked about this morning. Would you just hold your hands out in front of you just in a way of symbolically saying, God, I need joy. I need strength. I need steadiness. Maybe you're thinking of a very specific situation in your life right now. God, you see these open hands. You see these open hearts. Holy Spirit, we recognize our need for you. We admit that we cannot get this right or make this right or be right on our own. We thank you for Jesus, our righteousness. That when you return, we will be dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We receive the joy that's found in you. We receive the strength that you are. In fact, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We thank you for that. And make us steady. Keep us from unsure steps. Protect us and guide us. We rely upon you for these things, and we thank you that you're faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.